Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Well, good morning, church. Again, I don't usually do the, like the announcement things and then the things, so I don't know how to separate my good mornings and welcomes to you guys. So I'm just going to do the same thing I always do. Hey, it's nice to see you all for the first time, the first time today. Uh, I'm Peter. I'm the senior pastor here for those of you who, uh, who walked in a little bit late. And uh, we're finishing up, like Kyle said, we're finishing up our series in campfire stories today. But before we get to that, I want to talk to you a little bit about our next series, which is one you're really, really not going to want to miss. Um, it's called Oikos, okay? Uh, these are Oikos stories, essentially, that we're going to be telling. And we did a really cool thing, and we are continuing to do a really cool thing where um, Kyle and I and Jeff, we all sat down and we thought, okay, what is one way, what is a specific way uh, that we could really do our best to capture what it means to be the church, to evangelize to other people. And so uh, we stand on oikos. For those of you who are new here, uh, oikos is essentially uh, the, the idea that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed eight to 15 people in your life for you to make an impact for them in the kingdom of God. And so we thought, okay, what is it that we could do? And so we decided to brainstorm a list of names of people who we knew kind of their stories and how they came to faith, people in our church. And so then we started calling and text messaging and email. I say we very loosely. Uh, it was Kyle who did it all. And what we've done is we've begun to capture stories of people in our church who came to faith because the, because of the fact they were in somebody else's oikos. Um, and so we're going to be sharing those stories. And then on top of that, um, and more importantly, even we're going to be talking through uh, stories of oikos that we find in scripture as well. So that's going to run the next six weeks. You're really not going to, it's going to get us all the way through summer. Again, you're really, really not going to want to miss this series. But that's not to say that we're not finishing a really fun series as well. So uh, in this series that we've been going through, Campfire Stories, um, we have really talked about, we've taken some deep dives into scripture. We've taken some deep dives into stories that, man, a whole lot of people don't talk about these stories for the most part because of the fact they're pretty difficult stories to understand and to see how God is moving in the midst of them. I mean, really this came out of my desire to really just want to preach about the she-bears back in Elisha, um, which is phenomenal, uh, and so, uh, or Elisha and the she-bears, rather, and so, um, uh, but we've, we've, we've covered a gamut, a whole gamut of stories, and so we had the she-bears, we had a ghost hand that we talked about, we had uh, uh, Balaam and his talking donkey that we talked about, I mean, we have run the gamut, and some of these stories, like I said, are more popular, others aren't. This morning, we do get an opportunity to talk about um, some of the more famous ones, uh, or one of the more famous ones, and it's Lazarus being raised from the dead in John chapter 11, and so if you have your Bibles, you can put your thumb there to give a little bit more context about this series, though, especially if you're here for the first time, the reason that we actually did that series is because of a verse that we find in 2 Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And that verse says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So if that is true, if it's true that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, then that many thing that we find in the Bible is useful or else the Bible's wrong, right? And it's probably not gonna be wanting to contradict itself. And so we have intended to take a deep dive. So all of these things, all of these stories are useful, specifically this one. Man, when I, I thought Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, this is gonna be an easy one, right? It's been preached on. Most people know the story. Um, fruit for the series. You know what? We can knock that one out of the park. It's gonna be a wonderful series. We're gonna say goodbye to it and introduce another one. And as I dug into it more and more, man, you could flip to John chapter 11, close your eyes and put your finger down anywhere and pull some sort, some sort of takeaway from that text because there is so dense. It is such a thick text with so many things that we can actually pull from it. So just know, I'm gonna warn you, we are going to be more today than we normally would be. I know, I'm so sorry, we have to read the Bible more at church. My bad, right? Um, but this story specifically uh, captures a whole lot of people um, in, and their reaction to something that Jesus didn't do and then did do, okay? So it's a kind of, and if you don't know the story, it'll, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. But, but specifically, we're gonna pull truth from, from it that I think impacts all of us because all of us have been in a place where we've really questioned how God was at work in our lives, how God was moving, for some of you, it may be, man, I, I, I'm in the midst of a divorce or I'm going through a divorce. I cannot get on the same page as my spouse. God, what are you doing in the midst of this? How do I see you here? Maybe it's a, an illness of a loved one. And you're like, God, how, are you kidding me right now? I know that's what it was for me. That was something that shook me deeper than anything else in my entire life when my dad contracted cancer and passed away. It was one of those things where I was like, God, if, if you are good, and I believe that you are good, how is it that you have removed the largest spiritual influence in my life at such a young age? when he had so much more to give, not just to me in a selfish matter, I and mean, that's what I was thinking, but not just to me, but to the rest of the world. People were coming to know you because of the fact that my dad was working, because of the fact that my dad was being obedient. So God, how are you working in the midst of this? And it could, that could be for you as well. Maybe it's a death of a loved one or an illness or, or you're having physical complications or, or whatever it is. All of us at some point, if you've been a believer for any matter of time, can probably pinpoint a time in your, in your walk when you're like, God, what are you right now? Where we think that we ultimately know better than God. And this is ultimately what we're going to see today. So John 11 is where we're, gonna, where we're gonna be. And again, we're gonna cover a lot of ground. So let me give you some brief context. Lazarus, okay, was the brother of Mary and Martha. Um, their home was in Bethany. It was a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So now you guys all know exactly where I'm talking about, right? Because you guys all took geography and know exactly where Jerusalem was. Anyway, two miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a place where Jesus regularly felt welcome, felt very much at home. Uh, a lot of people believe that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were people of wealth, and they were some of the biggest contributors to Jesus's ministry. You ever think about how Jesus and the disciples ate for three years? Probably not. I did. 
Oh, how are they surviving? It's because they had people contributing and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their family were people who were contributing to that. And then we know for this context, if we just flip back to John 10, 40 to 42, that Jesus was presently staying in a place called Perea. And Perea was about 20 miles from Bethany across the Jordan. So Jesus is about a day's journey away from the home of Lazarus. And that's where we're, that's where we're starting. So John 11, verses one to seven. John 11, verses one to seven. It says this. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Another familiar story that a lot of you probably are aware of, right? So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. This is a pretty bold statement, right? The one you love is sick. So this is how, this is how we know what Jesus is and Lazarus's relationship was like. Even if you were compa- to compare this relationship and the way that they're describing Lazarus's relationship with Jesus to other people, to other people that Jesus had never met before, people who merely touched his robe. And Jesus was like, yep, you're healed because of your faith. Had no context, had no relationship with this person, probably didn't even know her name. But yet we have someone that Jesus loves is sick. When he, the sickness will not death. No, if you're a person who underlines in your Bible, underline this. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. This is a text that needs to frame our entire understanding of the story. This is, this is, going, this is going to glorify God and God's son. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. That's a weird sentence. Let's read it again. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, well, back up to verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so man, so Jesus loved these people so much. You go to verse six. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. What? Are you kidding me? Like, like when I hear that one of my loved ones, one of my family members are sick, I just found out a couple months ago that my uncle had cancer. And like right when I found out, I called him. I was like, Uncle T, what's going on? His name's Ted, uh, uh, really Theodore, not that any of you care. Um, and he always, he always could be brother. And so he always says, hey, buddy, when he gets on the phone because he doesn't know my name's Peter and not Michael. So anyway, we've all done that before, right? Hey, hey, man, right? Uh, anyway, but when, but when I found out he was sick, I caught like, it was like an immediate thing. Like, hey, I need to take care of this person. He is a loved one of mine. And so then we see in the story, that Jesus finds out someone that he loves is sick, the next sentence, the next verse is like, hey, someone's sick, so he stayed there for two more days. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Verse seven, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Okay, so he stayed for two more days, and then two days later, he's like, all right, time to go back. In the opening couple of verses in 11, we learn that Lazarus, he's sick, that Mary, his sister, on a previous occasion, he, she, she, poured, um, she poured perfume on the feet of Christ, wiped it with her hair, an incredibly intimate act that one specific disciple had a very big problem with. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is ill, and the implication in this message is that Jesus, come immediately. Come now. 
The person you love is sick. Now, now if I'm trying to guilt someone into do something, doing something, I'm going to use as many adjectives, favorable adjectives of that person as I possibly can. And that really seems to be what Mary and Martha is doing here. They don't just say, hey, Lazarus is sick. The word was, the one you love is sick. As a reminder to Jesus, hey, don't forget that you love Lazarus. And because you love Lazarus, you should probably do something about this. That's the implication that we find here. I find it strange reaction of Jesus to this message that he delays. They've sent word, urgent word, that Lazarus, their brother, the one Jesus loved is ill and yet Christ delays, not just for a few hours, not just for him to go pack a bag, not just for him to grab some water, throw it in his canteen and head out. He waited two whole days to do this. Why would Jesus delay? Why does Jesus, does he not really love Lazarus? Was Mary and Martha confused about how, I mean, the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus that Jesus was just like putting on a front? Like, oh yeah, you, yeah, I totally love you. Right, and then the disciples, him and Peter, are talking smack behind their back. No, I guess not what's going on here. So why is it that he would delay? The other option is, is that he's actually got a bounty on his head. So there's a little bit of fear maybe going on in the life of Jesus. After all, it's, it's in Judea. The reasons for the delay is given to us. And actually in verse four, it tells us that verse I had you underline. The reason is God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. He waits so he can be glorified through this mess. Mary and Martha, man, they wanted an immediate response. Right now, give me the response. We, like, like that's the world in which we live. Man, I got so frustrated because I had to wait in line like a couple more minutes for a frosty at Wendy's the other day. I was so upset. It was hot outside and like we were hanging out with our kids outside and, and Sarah was like, hey, you should go get some ice cream. I was like, sweet, I want to go get some ice cream. So I drove over to Wendy's the long way. Thanks a lot, road closure. Um, <laughs> drove to Wendy's and there's a line at Wendy's and I guarantee it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. No one was getting hamburgers. It was all Frosties. But anyway, but I was upset. I had to wait. I had to wait. Like we live in a world of immediate gratification, instant gratification. Man, if our coffee isn't done in five minutes and perfect, we are upset. So angry about those things. And that Mary and Martha, they wanted an immediate response. To delay would have seemed cruel. It would have seemed indifferent. It would have seemed uncaring. But that's because we don't have the full picture. And the truth is here that delays are inevitable in life. Delays just happen. And sometimes they're good delays and sometimes they're bad delays. Sometimes they're delays where someone shows up at your office with a cup of coffee the minute you need it. They interrupt your workflow. And you're like, I don't even care that you interrupted where I was. Thank you for the coffee. Thank you for being mindful. Thank you for thinking of me. Sometimes those are delays. Sometimes those are good delays. Sometimes, man, they're bad delays. We had a delay last night. We, uh, we, it, it's hot outside. We don't have a pool. And so we were doing the whole slip inside thing. I put on my youth pastor hat again, got one, like one of those long tarps that you roll out, right? And we staked it into our yard. And I even was really safe with the stakes and put stakes through tennis balls and smashed them down so no kid could get hurt, right? I know, pretty brilliant. I thought it was pretty smart. 
I thought about patenting it in some way. And then like three hours later, three hours later, while the kids are doing the slip and slide thing, all of a sudden I hear this scream from the backyard. I'm like, what is going on right now? You're supposed to be having fun on the slip and slide, right? Our, our six-year-old, Owen, had been redirected by one of his brothers, I won't share who, had been redirected by one of his brothers and caught his shin on one of the stakes. And so I know, right? And so Sarah and I are looking at her like, okay, is this just like a, like a kid's scream and he's gonna get over it? And so, or is this like a real one? And so we check him out and it's, it's bleeding decently, but it's a shin, right? And so like shins heal, whatever. Um, and so we wrap paper around it, get the bleeding to stop. And then we look, we took a picture, sent it to one of our fr- a friend of ours who's a nurse. And she's like, yeah, he needs stitches. We're like, I don't want to go get him stitches. It's Saturday night at 730. Why do we have to go get him stitches? <laughs> and, so then, and so then I didn't go get him stitches. Sarah went with him instead. And, <laughs> but, but delays, just, and he's fine. He got four stitches and he was a champion. He got cold stone afterwards. So everybody was happy at the end of the day, right? I know, how sweet. Um, We bribed him to not cry is really what it was. So regardless though, delays just happen. They're part of life. This wasn't part, like usually on Saturday nights, I'm coming in and I'm polishing up my message, making sure that that I have the right words. I'm spending time with God. I'm doing all those things. And that got interrupted last night. Delays just happen. Sometimes delays happen uh, because they just get in the way. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe Jesus isn't showing up at the same time that you want him to show up. Maybe you've been praying for something for a really long time. With my dad, I was praying for him to get healed as quickly as possible. God, heal him, heal him, heal him. It never showed up. And that's sometimes just what happens. And I was tempted to give up in prayer. I was tempted to give up in prayer. Delays just happen. But after word gets out of everything that's going on, of Lazarus and Jesus, we recognize that the disciples here are short-sighted. The disciples are short-sighted. John 11, 8 through 16, it says this, and this is going to be the disciples' reaction. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by the words of light, world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. It's a really confusing answer. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm gonna go there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Normal reaction for us on this side, we're like, what? guys, come on. Jesus is obviously talking about the fact that Lazarus is dead. We know Lazarus is dead. They didn't. So this makes sense. They're like, hey, if he's asleep, leave him alone. Sleep is good. (laughs) He's going to heal from this. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Like this is, I feel like Jesus just being like, all right, guys, you know what? Forget it for a second. He's dead. Okay. I just, I'm going to get you to that conclusion for you. So Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Oh, Thomas. I <laughs> love that guy, right? There's two, two instances that really stick out to Thomas. There's this one. He's like, hey, let's go die with Jesus. And the other one was like, I'll believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's like, man, what a reputation to have. 
But going back, after two days, so Jesus announces he's entering Bethany. The disciples, with the exception of Thomas, try to dissuade him from going. They're like, no, don't go. It's too dangerous. They say in verse 8 and verse 11, Jesus tells them why they're going. Lazarus is asleep. They misunderstand him. Jesus gets them there. The disciples, though, at this point, still don't understand what's going on. Even even with what Jesus said in verse 4, where he talks about what is happening now is going to be to the glory of God. That I am going to point people to me being the Messiah through this. The disciples still don't understand. We get it now. We understand on this side of the story what Jesus Jesus is doing. So I don't completely blame the disciples for not understanding what's going on. But nobody, the disciples, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, nobody but Jesus knew why Jesus had allowed Lazarus to die in the first place. Especially if all along he was going to visit him eventually. It was all palpably confusing to their experience. It simply didn't make sense. And from their perspective, in terms of their own experience, the sister and Lazarus in his final hours, the disciples would have logically concluded that Jesus, whom they had seen perfectly capable of healing, was just being a jerk, was simply being callous. Lazarus had to die in order for a greater miracle miracle to occur. And there's something more important than the healing of his friend. Jesus knew the great work that he would accomplish in the power of the spirit when he came finally to Bethany. Regardless of all that though, we get to Jesus coming to Mary and Martha and even Mary and Martha in their grief are faithful. Mary and Martha are faithful in their grief. Lazarus, he's been in the tomb for four days. At the time of Jesus, many people believed that after three days, the soul departed from the body and that then the body would begin to decompose. So day four is an important day here. This is when the soul would have left the body according to tradition, according to Jewish tradition. And the body then would have begun to stink, would have begun to decompose. The body would be anointed on the third day and the tomb would not be opened again. So this little snippet of information that John tells us, there is no doubt Lazarus is dead and that his body is now decaying. So starting in verse 17, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Okay, many Jews had come. Some were friends, some were professional mourners. Okay, this is a thing that happened back in the day. People would come and just cry and weep and they would get paid to do so. Okay, so any of you who are like super emotional or anything like that, maybe something worth looking into for you. Anyway, (laughs) so they came, they, uh, uh, 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Pretty typical of what we see of Mary and Martha, right? Martha goes, she's a person of action. Mary stays. Um, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What a response. And the first half of that response is a little bit like, 
Jesus, come on, man. Like, if you, if you just would have been here, you could have prevented this. I've seen you heal people. She would have seen Jesus heal people. She would have been privy to that information. She says, Jesus, if you just would have been here, you could have prevented all of this. My brother wouldn't have died. But then she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She's saying, look, I know, like, I know you would have been here. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. But I'm confident that, that if you just ask God, he will give it to you. Because I've seen you do those things before. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha is thinking end times. Martha isn't thinking immediately. She's like, look, he's dead. Okay, I get it. Thank you for trying to comfort me at the end of the end times. My brother is going to rise again. Jesus said to her, though, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never, will never die. And then he asks an incredibly important question. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Verse 27, yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you're the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. This kind of feels a little bit like when Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say I am? And Peter responds, you're the Messiah. It feels a little bit the same. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So Jesus is not yet in the city. She, they're like not outside their front door. Martha heard that Jesus was coming and went outside the city to meet him. Then Jesus wants Mary to have a conversation with him. So she calls Mary. Mary gets up, bolts out the door, and everybody else, including the people who are getting paid, follow her. Because she's like, oh, she's probably going to the tomb to mourn some more. I need to get paid. I need to mourn well. 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same sentence, same thoughts. A conversation at some point had happened between Mary and Martha where they said, if Jesus was just here, this wouldn't have happened. 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 34, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, everybody's favorite memory verse, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus' heart is broken right now. He is hurting right now. He is mourning right now alongside with them. 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man had kept this man from dying? My assumption here is, reading this here, these are some of the other people, probably some of the cynics, people who, who were maybe friends with Mary and Martha, maybe just outsiders who, again, were getting paid to be there and mourn and that sort of thing, are just like, well, he, he's healed blind people before. Couldn't he have stopped this? Couldn't he have fixed this if he was there? Why wouldn't he have fixed this? 
So one of the things that we need to pull from this then is both Mary and Martha wrongly believe that Jesus is there to minister to their felt needs. They wrongly believe that Jesus is there to minister to their felt needs. Oftentimes the same is true in church. The capital C church, our local congregation, all congregations, is that we wrongly believe that Jesus is here to simply minister to us and us alone. That Jesus is here to fix me, to fill me up. And now while that's partially true, that's really missing the big picture. That's placing your faith not in God, but placing your faith in what God can do for you. Believe it or not, when you read the Bible, if, you don't, if you're not reading the Bible through what God is doing and through what he did through his son, you're reading it wrong. If you're reading the Bible, thinking about how this applies to my life, you're only partially correct. You need to read the Bible thinking about God. This is a story about God and his redemption of man, not a story about man and how God redeemed them. And so that's something that we have to remember here is that even Mary and Martha got it wrong. Many of us want a Jesus who simply answers our needs whenever we call on him to do so. That's what you see in popular culture, right? Something happens and then all of a sudden there's a very pious character who's never prayed before, never gone to church before, whatever hits his knees. like, God, if you do this for me, I'll never whatever again, right? That's the same type of God that we see here. But then Martha adds in verse 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Even now in the midst of her grief, Martha confesses that Jesus is the answer. Although we will see her, her belief is not as strong or deeper as, his, as her words would believe. Then Mary enters the scene and Martha had gone to get her and told her all those things and and. Many family and friends and official mourners had come to comfort her and pray with her at this time of grief. And, and upon hearing that Jesus was asking for Mary, she leaves, they follow her. And Jesus is deeply, deeply moved by this. That verse, Jesus wept, is an important one for us to consider. Because Jesus, I mean, John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled this description that we find here is normally used of someone who is moved to anger by what he sees. Jesus is frustrated by what he sees. John wants us to understand that Christ has moved deep within his spirit at what it is he witnesses. Here's the thing that I found we find weird about this is that understanding that Jesus wept and how, how sad he was. There's one person in this story who knows what's going on. One person, and that's Jesus. That same person waited for Lazarus to die. And then that same person, as Lazarus was dead, and Jesus knew, if we look back at verse four, what it is he was going to do. Jesus knew, and so before Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus is moved and troubled and, and wept. So it begs the question, why is Jesus crying? It doesn't make any sense. Because if Jesus knew he was gonna raise him from the dead, minutes, hours later, I don't know, I don't know the official timeline, but if Jesus knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, is that someone who would be troubled? 
Is that someone who would mourn? Is that someone who would weep over the dead person? No. It doesn't make any sense. So why then is Jesus upset? Why would he weep over someone he was going to raise from the dead? Christ knew what it was he was about to do. So the tears aren't for Lazarus. Lazarus is going to be raised to life. Jesus' tears are for Mary and for Martha and their grief of their souls to the death of Lazarus. His tears are for the pain that death brings into life, into the life of family and friends. His tears are really for humanity who has to go through this. Death wasn't a part of original creation. That wasn't a part of what was, what was supposed to happen at the outset of creation. But sin entered the world and sin brought upon death. The wages of sin is death. And so because of that, Jesus sees a broken humanity. He sees a broken humanity. He sees people that he cares about who are mourning. Some of you have probably been in that position, right? Where you know that somebody is better off in heaven, in glory, than they are here. You may not have had a super close relationship with them, but you know that they are. That doesn't take away the grief, though. It still hurts. It still stings. It's still something that you have to go through. And Jesus, rather than showing up and trying to fix it right away, because he still doesn't, he's, I mean, he's still at a point where he hasn't raised Lazarus from the dead. Rather than doing that, he just sits with them and he mourns with them and he cries with them. Jesus wept with them. And it's an incredibly important part of this story. But then, Verse 37 37 happens in the midst of this mourning and grief and everything that's happening. And maybe this is a reaction to the fact that Jesus is crying and, and some of the cynics show up. And they say, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They never say it directly to Mary or Martha, but they doubt Jesus here. They doubt Jesus here. I mean, if he could help a complete stranger, why would he not have helped his friend Lazarus? Don't you hear the questions oftentimes? Maybe it's in the midst of those frustration and hardship and that sort of thing. When you're going through those things that you're walking through, that we talked about earlier, grief, death, illness, whatever, you fill in the blank. People are like, well, what about God? And you have a hard time articulating, we have a hard time articulating what God is doing in the midst of, this, uh, of these troubles, of these frustrations. So I don't even blame him for being cynical. Like that's what it looks like from the outside. Like, come on, Jesus. You healed complete strangers. How come you can't heal your buddy? Why wouldn't you do that? The answer to the cynics, though, comes in the form of a miracle. That's the answer. It starts in 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Again, that means that it was day four. Stone was closed. It wasn't going to be removed again. Take away the stone, he said. And then we have Martha's reaction here, who had just said that she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Here's Martha's reaction. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Like, don't open that. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Remember when I said that, Martha? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. First thing that Jesus did, 
He prays to the Father, consults God. Second thing he does, well, 42, to finish this prayer, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. John tells us that Jesus was, again, deeply moved, arrived at the tomb, and, and, and he, he consults with the Father. He looks in the tomb and in a loud voice just says, Lazarus, come out. Come out. The words and the truth that Jesus speaks here, and we talked about this last week, that the words of the Father, the words of the Son, the words of the Spirit, they give life. As we have Lazarus here, dead, in the tomb, Jesus simply speaks to him. And he's raised up, and he comes out after four days of being dead. There will always be reasons for us not to take a step of faith. Martha, even here, after saying, you know what, I believe that you are the Messiah. When it came time to take that step of faith, what did she do? No, 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 no. No, that's a poor, that's a bad call. That's gonna be real bad. And either, even just for her to be mourning, right? I mean, put it in modern context. Someone has been dead and buried for four days and Jesus is like, dig them up. No, no, no. We don't want that. We don't want that. Her faith here is challenged. Her faith here is challenged. Jesus challenges their unbelief and states the reason again for what is about to happen, that they might see the glory of God. So I wanna put your finger here in this part of the story because we're gonna jump back to it in just a second. But there's one more reaction we need to recognize and that reaction is the one of the religious leaders just a few verses later. And I want you to recognize the religious leaders in this instance feel threatened. So it's gonna take a turn for just a second. John eleven forty five to 48. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Tattletales, man. When the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then, key to this, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So the religious leaders here are threatened. They're freaking out. They don't know what it is they're, they're supposed to do. It would have been terrifying for them. These were guys who had it made in the shade and didn't want their stranglehold on the status that they had been given by the Roman government to be loosened. They didn't want that. And if they lost the following of the Jews to this new guy, Jesus, who was raising people from the dead, they would lose their power and they would lose their status. So their reaction is, is to feel threatened. This special counsel is called to report on Lazarus being raised from the dead. And the problem, man, of, of these people for the, for the bloodhounds of hate wasn't a lack of evidence. His enemies said he did many miracles. They could not deny Jesus's miracles, even the cynics. That's why Jesus's miracle was the answer to the cynics. 
They couldn't deny it. Jesus was doing it openly. People were talking about it. People were bringing sick people to him. People were lowering people from roofs to get to Jesus, which is a side note. I'd be pretty frustrated if I was that homeowner, but regardless, <laughs> he did many Miracles, they couldn't deny it. And this group, the Sanhedrin, it's a bizarre group. There's a chief priest at this time where largely they're called Sadducees who were the liberals in that day and they didn't accept miracles as supernatural. So this would have been hard for them to say that Jesus was performing miracles. These are the Sadducees of the day. They would have been opposed to it. But then the other group are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the more popular ones, right? Not the more popular ones, like in a good way, the more well-known ones, right? The Pharisees, they're religious conservatives. They're politically righteous people of that day. And those two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, did not get along, did not get along. They were opposed to each other in every, every single way. Yet here they are, Together, they joined together in their hatred of Jesus and in their determination to put him to death. What do we do? The Jewish authorities expressed their sense of helplessness here. They felt that something had to be done, and yet what could be done? And yet again, for, for them to do nothing meant their power, their control, everything that they had worked for, their status was going to go away. So they had to do something. And they feared that the people were gonna be swept away with enthusiasm and do something stupid that would cause the Romans to grow suspicious and then their power was gone. So we have, here we have three different responses to this story. We have the response of the disciples who were incredibly short-sighted. We have the response of Mary and Martha who had faith amidst their grief grief, but really not all the way. They said they believed something, but then failed to act. And then we have the response of the religious leaders who felt threatened by this story, felt threatened by what it was Jesus was doing. But we can't leave here without recognizing our response to the story. Our response to Lazarus' Lazarus's story is dictated by our level of faith. In the same way that every other people group in this story, their reaction was dictated by their level of faith. And regardless of how everyone else responded, when Lazarus heard the voice of God, he walked out of the grave. Jesus spoke truth over his life and he walked out of the grave. Lazarus had the strength to probably shuffle out from the grave, still wearing those grave clothes is what it said, wrapped around him with linen cloths of a dead body. And Lazarus had been raised to life, but he was still in shroud of death and the shroud had to be removed. But he was unable to do that himself. Lazarus needed help. He needed help removing those death shrouds. And so Jesus said, help him remove those. Take those off of him. Those of us who call Jesus savior, those of you who have made that decision in your life. We have eternal life in Christ. But many of us still shuffle around with our grave clothes on. Still are doing our best to be raised from the dead, but then carry all of those burdens of death with us on a regular 
basis. We're still bound in those clothes. We're bound in those old habits. We're bound in the old lifestyle. The old person that you were before you were raised to new life by the grace of God. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he had no need for grave clothes anymore because he wasn't dead. He was alive. When he was raised from the dead, he didn't want to wear a shroud. It probably would only be a reminder to him of those days that he spent in the tomb. Those days that he spent separated from Christ. Lazarus had no desire to wear those clothes after being raised from the dead, though he had the strength to walk out of the tomb by being called by Christ out of the tomb. He needed help to shed those clothes. He needed help to remove those clothes. It's, it, I'm going to keep going back to this because, man, if you, if you have not lived in community with people, real community with people, sharing your burdens, sharing your struggles, sharing your faith, sharing your triumphs, if you haven't done that, please jump into our small groups. If you have done that, jump into our small groups in the fall. Because of the fact that so many of us are so busy trying to do life on our own, we're shuffling around with grave clothes on. And God, Jesus is very clear here. He says, hey, he needs help. Someone take those off of him. I've called him to life, but he still needs help. There are people all around you who have already been called to life, who just still need help. You think, we meet, you think we're like launching small groups just so we can be social and hang out? No. We're launching small groups so we can tear death clothes off of people and see the life that Christ has given them. That's the direction that we're going. That's the direction we need to continue to go because Jesus has called us to life and we're shuffling around in death, doing our best to carry those old burdens, carry those things that, man, Christ has already put, to, those are old things, those are old habits, those are old lifestyles. Why would we still entrap ourselves to those things when we have been freed from sin and death by the grace of God in Christ? The truth is we're shuffling around when we should be walking. And the only thing stopping you from walking and walking clearly is those burdens that you need people in your life to help you remove them. So when are we gonna let other people help us remove our grave clothes? Who do you have in your life that's speaking truth to you? Who do you have in your life that's saying, why are you still carrying that burden? You're a new creation. Jesus called you from death to life. And I want to walk with Christ instead of shuffling along in my faith. That's why one of the first things I did when I came here for my personal life was get into a small group. I refuse to ask all of you to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do. Won't do it. Because that's hypocritical. And I want to do my best to be authentic. And so last September, me and Dave Fox and our spouses and the Gilcreases and a couple other people decided, hey, we should just start a small group. And we did. And the small group started with, like, what, seven people? Some weeks, four. And it was a real small group. Real small group. And then what happened was, is that as we began to do life and we saw how beneficial this was, we kept inviting other people into the fold and inviting other people into the fold and inviting other people into the fold, so much so that our group was massive, like, like 28 people on paper or something like that. 
And so we have to split the group so we can be able to then get into the midst of each other's lives again and pull, pull those death shrouds off of us so we can continue to walk in life and continue to encourage more people to walk in life. That's what Jesus does here with Lazarus. He calls him to life and then he says, hey, look, there's other people around you who want to help you walk. Let them help you walk because you've been freed from sin. So the challenge this morning is twofold. One, some of you, God's voice is clear and he is calling you out of the grave because you've never been brought back to life before. That's very clear. It's very evident in the story. But the second is this, man, as we are ramping up towards the fall and ramping up, Jeff is doing, he's doing a, a small group leader training and push and all that stuff uh, this summer. So we're ready for small groups in the fall. Consider it. Think about it. Pray about it. And even if it's not here, even if it's not in one of our small groups, you need to consider who it is. If you call yourself a child of God, you need to consider who it is that you are allowing to speak truth into your life. We need to do that. There's a reason that one of the questions that I ask Jeff and Kyle almost every single week is how did you feed your soul this week? Because I wanna make sure that our staff is healthy, that we're not shuffling around in death shrouds, death clothes. Who are you allowing to speak truth into your life this week? Again, your response to this story is directly related to the amount of faith that you have in Christ. That's not a knock on anybody. It's just a spiritual status of our lives, right? Some of you may be where the disciples at, and you're short-sighted, you don't understand everything that's going on, that's fine. The disciples, most 11 twelfths of them ended up doing pretty well. Maybe you're like Mary and Martha, who they had faith, but they just weren't ready to take that next step. Maybe you feel threatened by it. I don't know. That's your responsibility to take the spiritual pulse of your own life today. Let's pray. Father, I'm incredibly thankful for a series of campfire stories. And man, you have put some strange ones in there for us to be able to learn about and speak about. And, and they are indeed useful. And even this campfire story of somebody being raised from the dead, someone who was dead for four days, who probably stunk in the grave, that you raised him from the dead. God, I'm incredibly thankful for the power that that shows. I'm incredibly thankful for the different reactions that we have to each of the people in the story, each of the people groups in the story. And Father, I pray right now, if there are people who are here who simply need to be called to life out of that grave, I say simply, it's a big deal, who don't yet know you, who don't yet have faith in you, who have not experienced that eternal life yet that you so freely offer. God, I pray that, man, just right now, where they're sitting, they would follow along with me as we do every service. We would pray the ABCs. A, that they would just say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I recognize that I am dead and in the tomb. And God, that I mess up every single day and I'm living apart from you. I admit that, Father. But B, I also believe that you sent your son to the cross to be able to, to reconcile me to you forever. That I would be a saved person, a marked person. And that it wouldn't just be a get out of jail free card, Father, but it would also be the fact that I would see, choose to follow you every single day. That I recognize that eternity starts now.
that you have changed my status from death to life. And God, I freely admit that and, and I choose to follow you. And God, there's even another group of people in here who, who have already experienced that life, who already know that, you have, that you've called us out of the grave in the same way that you called Lazarus out of the grave. Father, and I pray for that group of people who, have, who are still just shuffling around. And God, you know that even I do that sometimes. That I revert back to my sinful ways. That our staff reverts back to the sinful ways. Our executive board, our leaders, all of us do because of our humanity, God. But God, I pray that we would allow other people into our lives to take that clothing off of us, that death off of us and speak truth into our lives. God, I pray today that we would make a decision to be authentic in our faith, to be authentic in our lives and allow other people to speak truth into our lives. So that as we allow them to speak truth, we can become fully alive in you. This Christian faith, Father, and you know this, you set it up. It's not to be done alone. You're a perfect example of that with the Father and the Son and the Spirit working perfectly together in community, even from Adam, that you saw it was good for him to have a helper. So you made Eve because it wasn't good for man to be alone. God, I pray that we would recognize the community, we would recognize that peace that we need in our lives that other believers would bring. And I pray that we would make that decision to make that happen today. Father, we're incredibly grateful for you. Incredibly grateful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.